Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. We're a show on Connecticut Public Radio, so we know the value of members that support quality journalism through their financial contributions. But membership is just one of the ways to help sustain a news organization. Today, we explore how online advertising continues to impact media outlets. Consumers are bombarded with ads on news websites, among others. But have online ads been effective in bringing in lost revenue from traditional print ads? Not entirely. So media organizations have had to come up with new funding models. Coming up, we'll hear from a journalism professor and from an editor of an independent online paper about what's working and what continues to ail the industry, an industry that's seen many newspapers getting smaller or folding completely in the last few decades. First, if you don't subscribe to a physical new paper, does that mean you subscribe to news websites? If not, do you fault media companies who've become dependent on online ads? Those cascades of ads that pop up certainly influence our habits. We want to hear from you, too. You can join the conversation. 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. For more about online advertising and how it's evolved, I want to welcome into the conversation by phone Lucia Moses. She's deputy editor covering media and advertising for Business Insider. This is a global financial and business news website. Lucia, welcome to our show. Hi, Lucy. Glad to be here. So uh, tell us, uh, walk us through some of the history of uh, when the Internet really became uh, something that more people were going on to each and every day. How did online advertising, how was it different and maybe more exciting than what uh, people were used to, the traditional print and broadcast advertising? Right, sure. Well, uh, the advent of the Internet, you know, everything was was new and a novelty, and people weren't... uh, you know, weren't spending their entire uh, lives online like uh, many of us feel like we do now. And the first, um, I've actually wrote about the history of the very first, or what's claimed to be like the first internet banner ad. And it had, you know, it was was very intriguing to people and lots of people clicked on it. You know, uh, the percentage of people who clicked on it was was very high. But um, it's all been downhill from there, as they say. And, um, Internet advertising is is uh, everywhere. Um, there are new forms of ads online. There are you know, they're, they're popping up in front of your content. They're popping up behind your content. They're um, often uh, being served to people uh, fraudulently uh, to, to people who don't actually exist. So, um, as I say, wherever wherever there's there's money to be made, fraud often follows. So, what you you've ended up with is uh, just an, an oversupply of advertising, mm. and uh, that's you know that's really impaired the user experience. Well, Chia, your phone is cutting in a little bit, so if you could just talk a little bit louder into your phone. Uh, sure. But tell us about that first banner ad. Well, it was on the precursor to Wired magazine's um, uh, website. Uh, it was called Hot Wired. And it just invited people to, to click. It wasn't very exciting, actually, by today's standards. 
And now uh, it's it's probably rare that many of us are even clicking on the ads because you mentioned we're inundated uh, today. Uh, but when we think about the types of ads uh, that we are seeing uh, most often, uh, are they the pop-up ads and also these video banner ads that even as you scroll down the page, that video doesn't seem to leave our eyesight? Right, right. Well, advertising is, is really about and, uh, the attention business. Um, if you start to uh, tune out, then advertisers need to find a new way to get your attention by following you around the page or by making the ad dynamic, you know, making it, um, making it blink or, uh, do, you know, do something else to, um, to get your attention. And with uh, the clicking on the ad, this was something that uh, uh, companies and advertisers were paying a lot of attention to, depending on how often the ad was uh, being clicked on, the click-through rate? Right, because, you know, the the sort of the promise of digital advertising is that unlike, um, you know, TV and outdoor and, say, magazine advertising, you can measure it with more, way more precision. You can measure exactly who you're targeting the ad to, how many people saw it, how long they saw it, you know, did they mouse over it, all these things. So the, um, uh, it's, it's best suited to advertisers who want to get some kind of result. They want to get, they want to be able to measure, um, an action taken. And what's uh, seemly about these ads is you're not just uh, seeing an ad and, and reading what's in that content, but these uh, companies, these tech companies, these advertisers are getting information from us uh, each, every second of the day we're on the Internet. Yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, supposedly the, the value exchange is that, you know, they'll serve you ads that are more relevant to you, more, uh, more targeted to you. Um, that's the theory. It obviously doesn't always work out that way as everybody who has gone, you know, shopping for something knows because then they get the same product seems to follow them around for days and days, even after they already bought the product. On the phone with me is Lucia Moses, deputy editor covering media and advertising for Business Insider. Um, what's your reaction to the ads that you see on uh, websites that you visit frequently, whether they're uh, websites to get uh, news and information or others? Uh, do you tend to ever click on those ads? Or are you really just ignoring them? And how have those ads uh, impacted your Internet habits today? You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Uh, now, when we think about how much we despise these ads uh, today, Lucia. Um, when we look, think about the ads that uh, we were used to seeing in magazines or even in TV commercials, why is the reaction different to those advertisements? Are they, are they better catered uh, to us or do they tell a better story? I think the difference is that um, the reader or the viewer's expectation when they open a magazine or go on, you know, go or turn on their TV is, is different. Um, the ads in in print, you know, you can you can turn the page, you can choose to look at it or not. Um, it's sort of passively getting your attention. Um, in certain magazines, like fashion magazines, the ads are well. People consider them part of the content. Um, you you, you want to look at the ads. Uh, they're they're beautiful and sumptuous. Um, on TV, the ads, you know, traditional 30-second ad is, is often, like, it's, it's, um, 
a platform or like a canvas for telling a really rich, beautiful story. Um, so they can be very entertaining. Um, I think the expectation when you're when you're going online and you're looking up the weather or looking for news or something or you're checking your email, you're, you're not you're not in the mindset of like looking to be disrupted by an ad. So I think the expectations have a lot to do with it. Mm. Oh, I mentioned that you cover uh, media and advertising for Business Insider. This is a global financial and business news website. Can you talk about um, how Business Insider is uh, working through online advertising and how you differentiate between, say, paid um, advertising versus the journalism on your site? Well, I mean, I, I think like uh, like all you know journalism outlets with with high journalistic standards, we feel like it's important to differentiate between what's an ad and what's not, so as not to confuse the reader or the the viewer. Um, I think um, increasingly ads on and editorial content are blurring the lines with um, with formats that uh, ad formats that kind of resemble. Uh, editorial content, just like, you know, the old advertorials that ran in magazines, but um, uh, most reputable or reputable uh, news outlets label them clearly so people know this is brought to you by a sponsor. Are there types of ads that are, um, I guess, uh, able to get the kind of of uh, viewership, uh, so to speak, uh, even though we now have ad blocker technology that people are using so they're not seeing, they're not be in, being inundated with as many ads as they peruse the Internet? So, yeah, the rise of ad blocking is kind of a reaction to how advertising is, has just um, – has become so pervasive on on people's um, you know on, on on websites that people go to and often you know really kind of pushes the boundaries of what people are are able to tolerate. Um, so people are installing ad blockers and you know it varies from website to website. But if you there's some websites that you know a quarter of their of their audience is blocking ads. So um, so you know, it, it becomes very problematic because most online publishing is, uh, you know, relies on advertising to to pay the bills. And so, on the flip side, uh, to avoid that uh, ad fatigue, but to also, as you mentioned, pay the bills, subscription models uh, have uh, come to uh, the forefront. Is that something that's uh, be is translatable to the entire news industry? We know uh, the big papers and dailies can do that, but is that something that um, consumers are willing to pay for? Well, yeah, increasingly they are, and I think that's a really healthy sign for the news industry because um, you don't want to rely on only one revenue stream. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's helped by the fact that it's been an incredibly intense uh, news cycle for the past few years, with uh, starting with the presidential election. Mm-hmm. So that has, like, motivated a lot of people to pay for news that they – you know, when they weren't before, or they used to, you know, there was uh, the expectation that news was free and, um, you know, information wanted to be free. Uh, I think times are, you know, the attitudes are changing. Uh, people are also just primed to pay for a lot of entertainment that they weren't paying for before. Um, there are a lot of, you know, new entertainment services like, you know, Hulu and Netflix that are charging, Spotify, charging for music. 
So um, the attitudes are, are are changing. The acceptance of paying for news is, is changing. But um, I guess there's a big but, and that is that there's uh, there's a limitation to how many um, news sites are going to be able to get people to actually pay up. There's just only um, only so many things that people are going to be willing to pay for. Mm-hmm. And Which, only so many things that, that will meet the standards of things that people feel like are essential to their lives. Lucia Moses is deputy editor covering media and advertising for Business Insider. Lucia, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be here. I'm from Connecticut Public Radio. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, advertising has dominated the web for at least two decades. So how are media organizations faring? We'll talk about that after the break. And we want to hear from you, too. Have you accepted this is how the Internet works? Or is there a better way to consume information without giving away all of our privacy? Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about how online advertising has evolved. In the journalism world, loss of traditional revenue streams have have had major consequences in the size and quality of media outlets today. Just look at the number of experienced journalists who no longer work at the Hartford Current, as its parent company, Tribune Publishing, continues to offer buyouts to cut costs. What's the way forward for newspapers that are striving to provide quality journalism to their communities? You can join our conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Coming up, we'll talk about some different models that are working here in Connecticut, some experimentations around the nation. But for more on the media landscape locally, I want to welcome into our studio Maureen Croto. She's head of the Yukon Journalism Department, and she's been on the board of directors at The Day in New London for the past 25 years. She was a reporter and editor at The Hartford Times, The Hartford Current, and The Providence Journal. Uh, Maureen, you've seen a lot. I have. I certainly have. A lot of changes. So uh, tell us back uh, when uh, you were working at the Providence Journal and the Hartford Times, traditionally uh, what the uh, revenue streams were that newspapers and their their parent companies relied on. We always depended on advertising. Uh, Very little of what a newspaper uh, took in in revenue came from subscribers. That was usually 20% or less and so advertising was what paid the bills, and uh, that's the way we thought it was going to go. And that certainly changed in the last 10 years, 20 years. That's interesting when you think about uh, the, how the classified ads were something that people uh, wanted to uh, look at each and every day. But you were mentioning that actual subscribers, it, it wasn't that much of the pie. No, it, the s- subscriptions were very a very small part of the revenue stream classifieds were an amazingly large part of the revenue stream, very important. And any newspaper that I ever worked at, that was the last piece of type that went in in terms of advertising because we took classified ads up until the last possible minute. Uh, They were uh, very lucrative, very important to keeping news organizations going. And then came Craigslist. And Craigslist, was that was something that was uh, easy for people to, to go on the Internet and uh, advertise without having to pay? Absolutely. So uh, they could advertise without having to pay. They could find 
people near them who were looking for something, selling something. It had a broader reach than uh, local newspapers did. So Craigslist was kind of irresistible and and free, as it, it, while we were charging. So it it wasn't surprising that before long our classified fell off, uh, and actually we tried to do what we could to save it. There was, a, and still is, an argument about uh, quality, about knowing the market that your ad goes to, and all of that kind of thing. So there's still an argument to be made for classified advertising. We still have certainly um, things like employment ads, uh, car ads, that sort of thing, uh, but not in the volume that we had. Uh, Wedding announcements are still popular, and then also obituaries. Well, I've been in journalism long enough, almost 50 years now, that I remember when no one charged for obituaries. Uh, when I first heard that news organizations were starting to charge to put people's obituaries in the paper, I was aghast. I was horrified by that. I, I grew up in an era where uh, newspapers had a responsibility, we used to say, to get people born, to get people married, and to get people dead. <laughs> and and I I thought that it was terrible to charge for that. But it's now, of course, the standard. It's interesting. On a personal note, my father passed away this past summer, and I had no idea how much an obituary cost uh, until uh, we came up with uh, you know this nice write-up about to try to capture the person he was, the life he led, and then you had to make sure that you uh, hit the the pay uh, the pay tab, uh, and it was a little uh, striking. But it's something that still that people still come to rely on when they think about their local newspaper. Well, and it's it's a matter of uh, documenting. The world that we live in. My grandmother died when my mother was nine years old, so obviously I didn't know her, and there are very few memories of her left in our family. But there was a local newspaper that wrote her obituary, and she had seven children, the youngest of whom was my mother, and they wrote a lovely obituary about who she was. And she was a a woman with seven children who died at age 54. They wrote a lovely obituary, and that is part of our family record and who we are. Uh, So obituaries have always played that role of documenting uh, our departures. What's interesting now is that uh, now that people pay for the obituaries, they have more leeway in what they're able to say. It used to be very, very formulaic. there were things that you just could not mm. change. I, I remember that for some reason, I won't even go into the reason, male relatives had to be listed before female. Mm. So if there were sons, they came first and then daughters. Uh, and we, we, heard, we heard earlier from uh, Lucia Moses about uh, when uh, the internet uh, became uh, more in vogue, people were excited about it. Uh, walk us through when you were uh, working as a journalist about um, how your particular paper at the time saw, besides the advent of, of Craigslist, but how you saw things changing. And was there excitement about maybe finding different ways of getting your stories out there? For journalism, uh, uh, these are the worst of times and the best of times, and not necessarily in that order. 
But there is tremendous excitement about what's possible today because of the internet, what's been possible in the last 30 years now because of the internet. And it has so changed the way we can report stories, the way we can involve readers. It's, it's made a dramatic difference in how quickly we can uh, get the news out to our readers, how we can deliver it, and also how we can find it and how we can hear from our readers and make them part of the process. So there's tremendous excitement about that. But the other side of the coin is that it has changed the financial model for news organizations dramatically, and it has raised costs because it's very expensive to fund new technology, to fund uh, new products that you make, uh, to bring in people who have the expertise to do that. This is a very expensive endeavor, and meanwhile, the traditional uh, forms of advertising have been eroding. And when you think about the internet, uh, when it began, all of the ads uh, be able to uh, reach out to the masses, uh, but the, the consequence of that is now uh, consumers have so many choices, they don't have to just stick to their, their local uh, paper, and then that then has issues with terms of workforce and who they're able to staff and, and what they want to cover. That's true. There's uh, the, the good news about the internet is that there's so much information. The bad news about the internet is that there's so much bad information. And it's very hard when you're being flooded with information all the time uh, for anyone to stop and figure out, is this information that's valid? Is it information that I need? Am I missing something important that I should have? And that's where, in terms of providing uh, a news product, the internet has has fallen down in general. And what about the impact of the 24-hour news cycle on the journalists that are that need to keep up with that uh, that uh, appetite for information, but making sure that they're still putting out a credible information? It's not. It is 24 hours, but it's more than 24 hours in a strange way, uh, because a reporter that who used to go out and do a story and report it in one medium is now going out and reporting that story and in the same time doing it for several mediums. And so that has increased the uh, the work within an hour and then we've gone to a 24-7 news cycle. It's very uh, intensive in terms of personnel and that's very expensive. In studio with me is uh, Maureen Croteau. She's uh, head of the Yukon Journalism Department, and she's been on the board of directors at The Day in New London for the past 25 years, also a reporter and editor at several uh, newspapers, including uh, the Hartford Current and the Providence Journal. Uh, we're talking about how uh, with the uh, advent of the Internet, with uh, um, all the um, the bunches of ads that you get every time you go on a particular website, how that influences our appetite for news and information, uh, where we go, what we ignore, 
for, and also the way that uh, these ads are able to uh, gather as much information as possible about us, whether we like it or not. Uh, this is how the internet works, and this has an impact on uh, news organizations and other media outlets and how they operate. You can join our conversation uh, if you want to talk about um, how your online habits have changed, the number 860-275-7266. Uh, to avoid some of all the ads uh, that we see uh, day in and day out, um, paywalls have now become more common, uh, Maureen, uh, subscriptions uh, to particular uh, news organizations. But how do smaller papers compete with the New York Times and the Washington Post? I don't think that we do compete with the Washington uh, Post and the New York Times. The uh, Those are two papers that are actually doing pretty well in terms of digital subscriptions. They've kind of gotten over the hump. And uh, news organizations are seeing that the traditional uh, print advertising resources are now being replaced by uh, by subscriptions and what we call memberships. It's more a membership model now. Uh, so we have to learn a new business in, in that way. But for local news organizations, if I own a home in Vernon, which I do, I want to know about Vernon. I want to know about the taxes. I want to know about the schools. I want to know about the police. And I'm not getting that from the Washington Post or the New York Times. So there are things that local news organizations do particularly well that no one else does. And we need to own that. Uh, we've always carried some national news and international news, and we still should. That's part of our news package. Uh, but the important thing for our readers is from us is what they can't get anywhere else. Well, when you think about online subscriptions, uh, say someone forks over the money for a year uh, a subscription online with access, digital access to the Times or the Washington Post, um, how often are they going to be able to pay for a subscription if they do a couple of, of the big papers and then if they try to get onto their local uh, web news newspaper website um, and a paywall comes up, how, how likely are they to then want to pay for that too? I think it's something that we, it, it's still evolving. You know, when I was growing up, television was free. And although cable existed as a way to get signals to remote locations as early as the 40s, it wasn't until about 1990 that more, that more than half of the households in the United States paid for cable. Uh, and that peaked at over 90%. And now it's going down as as streaming uh, providers have taken a lot of the business away. So I think it's a matter of what people get used to and what they value. And I think one of the goals of journalism today is finding a way to make that product, to make the local news more valuable to readers, to make them see the value of it and to make them want to become members because the time that you have to look at news is limited and the money that you have to pay for it is limited. So we have to be aware of what our market wants and needs and how to approach them and make them partners with us. 
How does uh, who owns uh, these uh, media uh, companies impact uh, that focus on content and quality, uh, Maureen? Because uh, journalists want to focus in on the work that they're doing. They want to amplify the voices in their communities or in their beats, but they're not in charge of how many uh, ads pop up when someone may go to their local uh, uh, website, their paper website. And so they might get turned off by even wanting to click. They may not even see that quality uh, story that a journalist has worked on. Well, I, luckily, banner ads have uh, almost outlived their usefulness. Uh, news organizations understand that that is just annoying to people who come to their site, and that's the last thing that you want to do. And people aren't reading them. The click-throughs aren't very productive. The money isn't there anymore. So I, I think that that at least is going to help uh, to help readership in terms of that. I think some of the sites are going to be less annoying than they have been, and they have been annoying. Uh, let's hope so. Uh, Maureen Croteau is in studio with me, head of the Yukon Journalism Department, as we talk about how, how online advertising has impacted uh, the way uh, websites, particularly for news organizations, uh, try to get their content out there. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Uh, because you uh, lead the Yukon Journalism tar- Department, I'm curious how you talk to your students about uh, how uh, journalism has changed and how uh, news organizations are operating, and what are the skills that they need to to get their foot in the door, Maureen? It is very different from when I was an undergraduate, and it's very exciting. I, I tell my students, if I were able to, I would switch places with them today, and I would be where they are, because there are so many different ways to tell stories. There are so many different ways uh, to be involved in in presenting news, uh, it's a wonderful time. Actually, that's the best of time uh, aspect to it. Uh, it's very exciting. It it is different. Uh, you know, some people of of my generation in news have become r- rather downhearted about the future of the profession because what we've lived through, but the future of our students is not the same as as our history. The future is quite different, and so they need a lot of technical skills that, they, that I didn't need, but they still need the same skills in being able to find information, to verify it, to question power, to... Um, act responsibly to understand the law and fairness and all of those things. So we have to make sure they have all of those, but also they have to be able to do it with social media and visually and with sound and uh, do it all at once. And that's a big job. Uh, But students today are native to this internet world which we were not. And so they adapt to that very quickly and they enjoy it. And uh, they're inventive and enthusiastic. Um, So it's good time 
I believe, to teach journalism. It might be the best time. I should mention we've been focusing on newspapers, but uh, here at WMPR, obviously, are a, a radio station, but we have a visual reporter, uh, Ryan Karen King, who I believe is a UConn uh, journalism grad, uh, someone who is learning, uh, learned the skills to be a journalist, but also thinking about different ways of delivering a story. Uh, visuals is very important, and even in a radio station, we've made uh, that investment. And so uh, constantly changing and evolving uh, to uh, capture a listener or viewer's attention is very important uh, for uh, many different uh, media outlets. Uh, when you were talking about the technical skills that um, that you didn't have to worry about the students today need, so you're talking about doing the video, uh, taking the pictures, and also thinking about how to deliver um, an article and with so many uh, character counts, say, on Twitter to capture someone's attention? Absolutely. And uh, when you write a headline, uh, now you're also thinking about what platform the headline is going to be on. You have to think about search engine optimization. And it's there are different skills embedded in even the, the same skills that we learned. Uh, it, it's a wonderful, wonderful time, actually, to teach journalism. I've been doing it for 35 years, and I would say this is the best time. And it's interesting what you said about um, about WNPR having visual journalists. Uh, my news organization, The Day, uh, has won an Emmy. I never thought I'd work for a newspaper that won an Emmy. It, the world has changed, and if you're, if you're part of the change and you embrace it and are excited by it, it's a great time. Unfortunately, the financial realities are difficult. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I've been speaking with Maureen Croto, head of the Yukon Journalism Department, and she's on the board of directors at The Day in New London. And coming up, we're going to talk more about some of the innovation happening uh, locally uh, within media outlets like The Day. Also, the New Haven Independent, uh, different revenue models uh, uh, that are working, subscription and others, uh, to get people interested in the work that's being done. You can join our conversation, too. Here's the number, 860 Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, Attorney General-elect William Tong vows to be a, quote, firewall against Trump administration policies by working with Democratic counterparts from other states. On the next Where We Live, we'll look at the role of attorneys general and how they plan to use their power over the next two years. You can join us, too. That conversation coming up Monday. Now, today we've been talking about advertising on the Internet and how it's impacted newspapers locally. Now, some online nonprofit newspapers have been successful, uh, like the Connecticut Mirror and the New Haven Independent. To tell us more, joining us by phone is Paul Bass, founder and editor of the New Haven Independent. Paul, welcome back to the show. Hi, Lucy. So nice to talk to you. Nice to talk with you, too. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your history in journalism, Paul. You used to be a print reporter. Uh, Tell us how you, why, and then how you launched the New Haven Independent. Sure. And I agree so much with your previous guest. She said it's the most exciting time to teach students. It's also been the most exciting time to be a reporter. I've been in the business 40 years, and the last 13 years doing the independent has been by far the most meaningful and interesting, innovative time to be a reporter and the closest you get with your readership. 
So, uh, yeah, I've been, since the late 70s, I've been covering New Haven, and I love it. And uh, then I took a break to write a book and didn't want to go back to a corporate newsroom. And I decided to go online at a time when there were just blogs, and, like, I was kind of a uppity um, old-school reporter sniffing at these blogs, kids in pajamas, linking to real stories. But thought maybe you can harness what blogs are doing, immediate reporting, multi-platform, readers inform your stories as they break, tell stories in new ways with journalism, and a few others are starting at the time, one in San Diego, and the way to fund it would be the NPR model, which is that journalism is utility, a public interest, an essential part of democracy. The old model is no longer working, <clears throat> which is kind of good. Advertising supported corporate journalism that would play it safe and feel very self-important and report from cubicles and feel like you were telling people what to do. and have it as a public interest vehicle. So we were supported by foundation grants and then local philanthropic uh, money. Didn't know how long it would last, but it grew and went through a lot of evolutions how we tell the stories. There was no YouTube at the time or Facebook, and that became part of how we told the stories. And 13 and a half years later, we're covering New Haven every day. We have a, a radio station that's part of what we do, part and parcel of the stories we report in conjunction with La Voz Hispana, Hispanic newspaper. And we have an addition in the Norcook Valley, Valley Independent Sentinel. And uh, it's just a great time to be a journalist. And, and I have a very optimistic view of what's going to happen next, which will not be the NPR mm. model. So tell us more about that. What, what will be uh, the, uh, the next uh, uh, wave of how to support uh, journalism, uh, but also uh, you know, garnering that interest in communities, uh, that this is the content that uh, readers and listeners want to hear and read? Well, before I get there, so now the NPR model did succeed. For the last 13 years, every other kind of journalism shrank, and there are at least 150 publications like The Independent that are doing real journalism, people getting health care benefits and being main source of news, and that's the NPR model. I think it will continue. I don't think there will be only one model. But the exciting part is I think paywalls have finally arrived. They haven't yet trickled down to local journalism, but they will. What paywalls are is that you have to pay to read the articles. The New York Times 10 years ago tried a paywall and it bombed. People weren't ready to pay for good news. Good by means high quality. That all changed in the last two years, and they now have 3 million people paying to read the Times online only. 3% of their 100 million uh, unique viewers on the Internet. You have the um, New Yorkers making money with online only, the Atlantic. Yeah, there's even a small site in Wichita that's like ours, the NPR model, that's switched to paywall. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to happen tomorrow. But what's great about this model, because people are paying for emojis, they're paying for ringtones, they're paying for that automatic $10 checkoff to go to the gym. And it's no longer going to be philanthropic. Basically, with the big media companies that just sucked all the value out of local communities before the business model collapsed, they're just cutting back on local town news. People still will want high-quality news, but they don't need 20 stories a day because their inboxes are filled. So there was an experiment like this that failed called Patch, and another one by a guy named Joseph Ricketts in like DC Info and DNA Info that had a false premise that they just build up tons of eyeballs and had a national network that get advertising. Advertising can no longer support local news because it's so much more efficient to advertise with social media and email lists. But because people now pay for news, all you need in a town like, let's say, Hamden, 
is if there are 1,500 people out of 60,000 who care about what's happening with school board, with local government, with politics, with local business, and you give them a couple of good stories a day, if they will pay $10 a month, you'll be able to fund a couple of good reporters to do three or four good stories a day. I mean, Queens has 2.3 million people and no daily news coverage of its institutions. If just 6,000 out of 2.3 million people have a stake and pay $10 a month, you'll have six excellent reporters, which is all you need to do, like the courts and the schools and government. You no longer need the supermarket model of media where you also cover sports and arts and the comics because people can get that stuff elsewhere on the web. So you can strip it down with a low barrier of entry with the new business models. You no longer need an expensive office. You no longer need printing presses. You no longer need delivery people. Twitter and Facebook are the old paper boys of our youth. They deliver the stories or it's soon going to be aggregation like through Apple News and AI-based uh, aggregators who tell you what you think you want to read. And we'll just be newsrooms who report in all different formats. Look at Oakland, 420,000 people. Right now they have no regular news coverage. It's like the hottest city. In the all you need there is 4,000 out of 420,000 to do $10 a month and that will fund local news with four good reporters. So I think it's going to shake out, unlike with the NPR model, which is what we're dedicated to and which we love and which you think is a good model, hard to keep sustainable, but we're still hanging in, that other model, people will actually need it. So it's not membership. It's not like do a good thing and support quality journalism, which is our pitch, which is a good pitch. <laughs> but it's going to be, you're going to need it. You're going to need, and you're only going to want to read for 15 minutes a day and then weigh it out and be part of a community that's engaged, not that kind of corporate-style journalism. And I think we're going to see that shake out and that real private investment money will go into it because eventually you'll set up networks of these sites. But unlike chains of old, they're not going to be directed from up top and trying to do things on the cheap to extract value out of community. They're going to be locally rooted with perhaps like a central editor, a central business manager, and a central webmaster for six or seven sites to cut those costs, but really rooted in the local community where you could spend not tons of money but you're not exploiting anybody in the process. So I think it's a great model, and people yeah. half my age, I'm sure, are all on top of it now. And uh, it's gonna be, we have a great day in journalism right now, best decade we've ever had in terms of real, honest, local, engaged, independent reporting and innovative reporting, non-corporate, and we're going to be going into a better age. Paul Bass is founder and editor of the New Haven Independent. Uh, that's all good to hear, uh, Paul. I wanted to get Maureen Croto's uh, perspective uh, to what you have been talking about, as well as uh, how the day in New London is also changing. When I went to work at the day as a director 25 years ago, we were a daily newspaper. And now we have 12 weekly newspapers. We have uh, website, we do video, we do audio, we do special books, we do uh, digital media uh, uh, services a as a special uh, a special uh, value for our readers uh, and for our advertisers. So we've changed a lot and we're still looking at the way to change because for newspapers that have that background, who have the real estate, who have the payroll, who have the pensions and all of that, the switch from the traditional uh, forms of revenue to the new revenue stream, which is, I think, going to be membership, uh, is difficult. So one of the one of the things that a lot of newsrooms are doing is looking at a way to make this work. And in the at the day, there are three things uh, that we're doing. We're 
uh, working with the pointer uh, program called Table Stakes, in which several uh, news organizations around the country work together, pool their resources, and the whole goal is to come up with ways to funnel readers into paying members to make our product more relevant to them so that they want to support us, they want to support the product, they need us. And that's what this entire uh, pointer table stakes program is about. Next month, we're also starting a platform called Harken, uh, which will allow us to have more interaction with readers so we can get their feedback on stories faster. We can get their input on stories faster. We're not going to have to go through Facebook and Twitter and find out what people are saying. We're going to have a way to speak directly mm -hmm. to readers in real time. And uh, we're also using something from the American Press Institute called Metrics for News, so that when we write stories, uh, we are able to track them better and to know uh, if our readers were interested. Uh, and the, so far, studies said that what interests readers is not the story about your cat doing cute things, which uh, has, which I love on YouTube because I love cute cats, but uh, what actually interests readers of news organizations is stories, meaningful stories uh, that affect their lives. Uh, Paul, uh, you uh, you and your staff at the New Haven Independent are hyper-local. I'm curious um, how or if you even pay attention to metrics. We pay too much attention because the metrics are bogus because the big companies try to get 10 times as many eyeballs to stories thinking that could sell all the ads they used to sell at just one-tenth the price. It doesn't work because that model doesn't work. I love the intention behind the projects that Maureen just mentioned, but I think it's all a waste of money. Because the way you find out what people think and want is you go out and report stories and you're available and you're paying attention and you're rooted in that community. And I think that's time and again showing what the value is. So I think the way you're going to get to that goal is not through pointer experiments and sharing newsrooms across the country. It's sending people to the zoning board and then spending a little while on thinking about why the story matters and living in that community and seeing the person in the grocery store who just was mad at your article and having the readers with a moderated input uh, through comments where it's all civil really add to the stories in real time. I think that uh, a lot of money has been spent for the last 10, 15 years on these well-intentioned foundation-type fixes, but time and again, what's shown to work is to be out there reporting, be smart, and care. Of course, and we've been out there reporting. We've been out there reporting in our community. Oh, I, I don't mean to be criticized at all. I think the New London Day is great. I love what they do with their system. It's not about the New London Day, and it's not oh. about the good intentions and the wonderful people trying to fix it. I just think that a lot of money, because I've been involved in a conversation with a lot of people in conferences about all these big fixes like Report for America, and you do some Keystone project and all this stuff. I think what the funders are missing is that what works time and again is just have extra reporters out doing real reporting in this closely engaged way without barriers and new tools and worrying about what social media platform you use. I find that they know how to do it, the younger reporters. They use different platforms, but the best platform is face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as you write the article and care about it, getting that feedback and changing what you do based on what you heard. I know the day does it. Day is great. Days like the uh, 
is, is the gold standard in local reporting. So I didn't mean, and I apologize if it sounded like I was criticizing anybody. I think there's an endemic misunderstanding nationally in the journalism community coming from people still looking at that old media model and trying to recreate what I think was a disaster of the late 20th century in corporate consolidation journalism, which today was always not part of because it was owned by the local foundation and state local. So it's not about the day. But it is about the journalism founders, funders who were well-intentioned, who keep trying to fix things from afar and keep missing the point that, as Maureen said, the story people care about is that local zoning board or police commission or neighborhood meeting story. As long as you think about it and care about it and are part of that community. And so I think it's a low-budget solution. And it's not about people wanting to support you in the next phase, although that's a great model right now for sites like ours, mm-hmm. but people needing to because they have no choice. I wanted to just go back to Maureen uh, Crocho, who, again, is on the board of directors at The Day in New London, also leads the Yukon Journalism Department. Um, we were talking about uh, big conglomerates also taking over uh, newspapers, but The Day of New London doesn't operate that way. Can you briefly tell us uh, um, you know, who owns The Day and then how you're able to then think about the stories that you're doing? We are owned by a trust and it was an independently owned uh, newspaper. When the uh, publisher uh, died without a lot of family members, he left the newspaper in a trust uh, to benefit the community. So the terms of his will require us to produce a good news product, to treat our employees well, and to return excess profits to the community. So it is a different model. Um, and as far as what Paul had to said about say about fixes from afar, I I agree with that. Uh, but I think that one thing we've learned is that there is no one fix. And I think for newsrooms now to step back to really take a look from a distance, perhaps with the help of others, at how they reach out to their readers at uh, how they interact with them is a very good thing. And I, I think that to look at uh, metrics, not in terms of how many eyes view this ad, which is just bogus, but uh, to look at what stories actually resonate with readers, I think is very important. And I think that's another part of reaching out to our readers and making contact. We're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Maureen Croto, again, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Also, Paul Bass, founder and editor of the New Haven Independent. Paul, as always, thank you. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Lydia Brown. And our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Learn more about our show, wmpr.org slash where we live. You can also download our podcast, listen to our rebroadcast at 7 p.m. And for more information, you can learn more again on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.